Hello, and thank you for joining us today for this Cato Institute virtual event on America's approach to nuclear deterrence with Russia and China. My name is Eric Gomez, the Director of Defense Policy Studies here at Cato, and I'll be the moderator for today's event. U.S.-Russia and U.S.-China relations both appear to be heading for a cliff quickly. The COVID-19 pandemic is prompting more aggressive rhetoric and calls of punishing Beijing from the United States. This reaction to the pandemic is building off recent Chinese actions such as establishing concentration camps in Xinjiang and taking a harder line in Hong Kong that in general have made more U.S. policymakers wary about cooperation or engagement and more accepting of a harder line approach. The U.S.-Russia relationship is not as openly hostile, but it is also deteriorating, especially in regard to arms control agreements. The Trump administration already withdrew the United States from the INF Treaty last August, and just this past week announced its plan to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty. In this environment, it is essential for Americans to understand Russia and China's approach to nuclear strategy. Armed conflict, including nuclear conflict between great powers, is still a very remote possibility, in absolute terms, but U.S. policy can change this. A solid U.S. deterrence approach that has a good understanding of Moscow and Beijing strategies will help keep the peace even if general relations break down, but a poorly crafted approach to great power nuclear deterrence could make conflict more likely. Furthermore, the economic impact of COVID-19 could place very serious budget stress on America's nuclear modernization plan, which is expected to cost some $1 trillion over the next 30 years. If there is less money available for nuclear modernization, we need to have a clear picture of which systems are truly essential and which are superfluous for dealing with Russia and China. It has been two years since the Trump administration released its 2018 nuclear posture review. This document prominently features Russia and China as major threats and crafts numerous policies to respond to them. Now that the administration has had its chance to place its stamp on America's nuclear policies, it is time to assess their effectiveness before committing more and potentially scarcer resources to nuclear modernization. Has the United States accurately diagnosed the most important nuclear problems posed by other great powers? Is Washington designing the right solutions to these problems? And perhaps most importantly, what are the risks of misdiagnoses or bad policy solutions? I'm delighted to be joined today by three distinguished guests to help provide answers to these important questions. Amy Wolf is a specialist on nuclear weapons policy at the Congressional Research Service, and she will kick off our discussion today by walking us through what the NPR says about America's approach to Russia and China. Then Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia program at CNA, and Fiona Cunningham, an assistant professor and expert on China's nuclear strategy at George Washington University, will each dive deeper into Russian and Chinese thinking, respectively. Each of our speakers is going to present for no more than 10 minutes, which will leave us roughly 30 minutes for questions and answer. Please submit your questions using the uh, Slido tool on this website or on social media by using the hashtag CatoFP. Amy, the floor is yours. Thank you, Eric. Um, thank you for having me here today. Thank you to Cato for inviting me to present here. Um, Eric posed three very important questions, and I am not in a position to answer them, but I'm going to try and walk you through the concepts that were laid out in the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review that set the groundwork for how the United States is currently defining the problem and therefore pursuing new nuclear capabilities to solve the problem. 
United States is defining the problem correctly, whether we are looking at Russia and China in the appropriate manner, that I'll leave to Michael and Fiona, and I'll make that point a few times as I walk through here, that that's up to them. I'm just going to tell you how this administration has interpreted where we are in the nuclear uh, environment with Russia and China. I'm going to ask or address basically three issues. What does the nuclear posture review say about what our threat environment is? What does it say about how we're going to address that threat environment? And third, which weapon systems are we seeking and why to address that threat environment? So first, and you've heard it many, many times, we are now in an era of great power competition. That's what the nuclear posture review says our threat environment is. And this differs, differs significantly from both the 2001 and 2010 nuclear posture reviews. In 2001, the tagline was that Russia enemy and China and Russia have the potential to be enemy to be uh, challengers in the future, but we're not going to plan or size our nuclear forces as if Russia is just a smaller version of the Soviet Union. That's in the documentation from the nuclear posture review. In 2010. The Obama administration pointed out that the threat environment was one that mixed cooperation and competition with both Russia and China, and that the, inter the international security environment had changed drastically since the end of the Cold War. It wasn't adversarial and risky as it was just competition married with cooperation. 2018, of course, said we have returned to great power competition. The NPR said that Russia and China have made it clear they seek to substantially revise the post-Cold War international order and norms of behavior. Russia's demonstrated its willingness to use force to alter the map of Europe. China's continued to undertake assertive military initiatives. And Russia and China are pursuing asymmetric ways and means to counter U.S. conventional capabilities, thereby increasing the risk of miscalculation and the potential for military confrontation. This concept of the risk of miscalculation carried over into if that's the problem, our nuclear solution has to be one that addresses this risk of miscalculation. Not only do we need the forces and capabilities to deter a nuclear war or to deter attack on the United States and its allies by promising a secure second strike, but we needed to address this risk of miscalculation that either Russia or China could think that what they could take steps and we wouldn't respond because we did not have appropriate nuclear weapons. So the first step in defining that response was through the concept of tailored deterrence. And you heard the phrase tailored deterrence in the 2001 nuclear posture review, in part because you had some of the same authors, they used the same phrases, but it meant something different in 2001. There it meant tailoring our attack plans and the strategies that we would use when confronting a challenge by having it not be what they refer to as one size fits all, but what during the Cold War, we sized and structured our forces to meet the Soviet threat and everything else was a lesser included case. In 2001, they said, we're not gonna treat everything else as a lesser included case. The 2018 Nuclear Posture Review used the phrase tailored deterrence in a different way. It didn't just mean how we would plan to use nuclear weapons. It was referring to specifically the types of nuclear weapons that we would need to address the threats from Russia and China, plus Iran and North Korea, and that we would tailor our military capabilities, our forces themselves, not just our plans, to meet those threats. So the deterrence strategy 
the NPR said that is effective against one potential adversary may not deter another. And the strategy that we have ascribed to our great power rivals and we are trying to counter with changes in our force structure can best be described, and these are my words, not the NPRs, but as a coercive first strike potential. Now, when you hear the NPR talk about Russian strategy, they frequently refer to Russia's escalate to de-escalate doctrine. And I'll let Michael address whether or not that really is Russia's doctrine, but what they're saying is that if we're involved in a conventional war with Russia, that Russia has started in the European theater near one of our allies, that if Russia is winning and NATO comes to the defense of the allies, they might try to coerce us to withdraw or go home or not fight by threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And we therefore, to tailor our deterrence to that problem, need nuclear weapons that are a credible threat to be used in return. And I'll come back to that in a minute. In the NPR, they focused on the Russian threat in that coercive manner as a part of the deciding what forces we need. But they've recently attributed that kind of coercive behavior to China as well. And just last week or two weeks ago when they published it, the paper on ch the Chinese threat that we're dealing with, the nuclear portion of it says, as described in the nuclear post review, the administration is prioritizing and modernizing the nuclear triad, including the development of supplementary capabilities designed to deter Beijing from using its weapons of mass destruction or conducting strategic attacks. So it's essentially the same concept that we need nuclear weapons that are a more credible, usable threat so that we can deter Beijing from forcing us to go home, from compelling us to go home. Now, the issue is very different here. If we're trying to respond to that coercive threat, why aren't our nuclear weapons that we have now sufficient? And the answer that the NPR gave is that because they are so high yield and so critical to our central strategic deterrent, the Russians or the Chinese might think we won't use them, that we will be self-deterred. So the response is that we need new types of capabilities that look more usable. And the reason they need to look more usable is not because we'd be more likely to use them, but because we want the Russians and the Chinese to believe we'd be more likely to use them. Now, if that's confusing, that's the intent. It's deterrence theology. We're in their heads, they're in our heads. It's less about what target you would hit, but about the risk that you would actually respond and therefore create the possibility that the war might escalate. This isn't escalation ladders like we saw in the Cold War. This isn't nuclear use in a particular target like we saw in the Cold War. This is manipulating the misperceptions that the NPR declares that Russia and China hold towards the United States. So what are those two supplementary capabilities? We've, had, we've been debating them for three years now. It's the low-yield warhead on a Trident missile, and it's the... Um, the ability to put sea launch cruise missiles back on submarines in Asia. So hang on, I gotta fix a computer here. So we basically are developing these systems so that we can respond to this version of the Russian and Soviet doctrine. And we're hoping that that will keep them from pursuing threats to us in the region at the time. But I'm gonna leave it to Michael and Fiona and turn it over to Michael right now to see whether that is exactly what they are actually going to do. 
Okay, thanks for those wonderful uh, remarks, Amy. Let me just kind of follow up and talk a little bit about how I see the NPR and some of the writing and our own writing in relation to what Russian nuclear strategy is, what we mean by Russian nuclear strategy, and particularly Russian escalation management strategy. So kind of some broad first framing remarks. I think that we are fundamentally two strategic cultures who think about the utility and role of nuclear weapons a bit differently, particularly in the post-Cold War period. Some of the current US writing on Russian nuclear strategy somewhat reflects a shock of discovering these tremendous differences, which were always there, and some fundamentally different outlooks on what a great power war might look like between us today and the year 2020. A lot of what's taken place in Russian nuclear strategy is certainly not new, but it is very much new to the individuals dealing with those problems set here in the United States, particularly as we shift in national defense strategy, much more dealing with the threat from great powers. Uh, NPR's discourse on Russian strategy in general, I find to be a little bit dated and I think needs to catch up. It's very much reacting to developments in Russian thinking from the late 1990s and mid-2000s, which is fine, but I believe we're going to need another NPR to actually get us to where Russian thinking is in 2020 on nuclear escalation and conventional nuclear escalation and the role of nuclear weapons in escalation management. Does the NPR get Russian strategy right? Well, the answer I'm going to give is unsatisfactory, which is yes or no, kind of give it partial credit on that. I'll outline three broad intellectual struggles that I see in the document relative to Russian nuclear strategy. First, the U.S. would very much prefer to have a conventional only war with Russia and win, but that's clearly not in the cards because any war with a nuclear armed great powers is implicitly nuclear. And the stakes could easily rise to make it nuclear. But most importantly, nobody on the Russian side believes that a regional or large scale war can be sustained as a conventional only enterprise when the conflict continues to escalate, right? And we realize the Russian doctrine and strategy expects nuclear weapons will be used in some way, shape, or form, and that always looms large over any crisis. This is not all a new reality. If anything, Russian thinking is an improvement and a refinement on Soviet thinking in the late Cold War period on the likelihood or prospects of managing escalation in a great power war. Second issue, briefly, is the belief that Russia will use nuclear weapons early on to coerce us and force capitulation. This is a misreading of Russian strategy, but with a very reasonable foundation given what Russian strategy actually is. I can see why we think that. Russian thinking does have a very strong nuclear component in escalation management strategies and a strong nuclear signaling component. Plus, you have to hedge, and you don't necessarily know that that's not, in fact, what Russia will choose to do in a real-life situation. And the third issue is the NPR often tends to kind of contradict itself logically by telling Russians that they have a dangerous theory for controlling nuclear escalation. And it definitely won't work. And we need to get ourselves some of that too, because we have a gap that we need to bridge with new capabilities to allow for gradual escalation options and flexibility, which oddly sounds exactly like the kind of force structure that Russia has already developed, which we are frequently complaining about. That's why I often joke that Dr. Strangelove, one of my favorite films, is not a satire, but often feels like a documentary when you get into a real nuclear policy debate. Um, and last, a point they'll pick up that Amy was making. The U.S. possibly does fear of being self-deterred due to lack of flexibility and force options, right? Um, and these fears are very legitimate from my point of view. However, they are not tied to any Russian deterrence calculation. There is no Russian writing about advantages in asymmetry of yields or the desire or the ability to exploit an existing capability gap. This is simply not the basis of Russian thinking on nuclear strategy or escalation magic. That's just the reality of it. The yield asymmetry doesn't matter. This is a thing that U.S. policy people and planners are very much concerned with, but it's mostly a psychological self-deterrence issue for the United States. Let me turn to Russian escalation management strategy. I would very much like to plug two reports CNA recently pulled out, uh, put out specifically on the subject. They covered, I think, fairly comprehensively. If you like what I have here uh, to say today, please have a look. 
Um, if you don't like what I have to say, you should definitely have a look because maybe an in-depth uh, readout of what it is and how the Russians got there might change your mind. Let me focus on Russian problem statement, which is first fundamentally the problem Russians are trying to solve in developing escalation management strategy is the fact that U.S. conventional weapons are strategic in nature. Long-range standoff weapons when used in mass can inflict unacceptable damage on Russia with conventional weapons. Russian general purpose forces can't deter this, and defense is cost prohibitive, right? It's just unrealistic. And so Russian military was always seeking um, strategic conventional options and non-strategic nuclear options to manage escalation, to be able to deter this kind of strategic conventional attack, um, to be able to generate operational pauses, uh, and, and as always, also for warfighting purposes, right? Um, for both conventional and nuclear warfighting. Looking at Russian nuclear strategy today. So nothing's really changed on the strategic nuclear forces end and when it comes to strategic nuclear deterrence between these arsons, okay? On the question of non-strategic nuclear weapons, in the Russian military and Russian military strategy, these very much, um, thank you, yeah, I think, uh, these very much uh, retain a nuclear warfighting role, which was never abandoned. It has always been viewed by the Russian military as a cheap asymmetric offset to U.S. conventional advantages, very much akin to the flexible response strategy the U.S. had in the 1960s. They need it. We fundamentally don't. And U.S. language on theater nuclear warfare reflects a normative policy consensus that U.S. policy people kind of had with themselves, believing that everyone should abandon nuclear warfighting and escalation option. Um, but this agreement was never actually made with anyone else. Because Russian views on these aren't new, and they haven't changed. Was the Russian military writing mean by the term de-escalation? What is Russian escalation management strategy? First, prevent further escalation, um, which is fundamentally about escalation management. Ideally, this can terminate a conflict on favorable terms, but it's not about forcing capitulation necessarily or just a war termination strategy. The Russian goal in this thinking is to deter a period of threat from escalating into war, to affect interwar deterrence between different sizes or, or scopes of war, such as local war, regional war and large-scale war, and potentially just to maintain the conflict going in its current scope and size. That is, if it's a local war, to keep it to a local war and prevent it from escalating to a larger conflict, right? Also to deter other powers from joining the conflict and to be able to create an operational pause in an ongoing war that will create room for negotiations. The Russian thinking escalation management is entirely cost-based. That is, inflict costs higher than the, the gains or the benefits the adversary seeks. It breaks down two components. One, Deterrence to intimidation and fear inducement during a period of military threat or confrontation, sometimes like where we're going through today, day to day. This is about demonstrative actions, deployments, threats to inflict damage to vitally important objects with conventional weapons, single use of precision strikes, even at the outer edges of it. We see this day to day in Russian military signaling actions, and it's meant to deter the United States. We see it as nuclear saber rattling. They see it as part of a structured system of deterrence to intimidation. Part two, deterrence to limited use of force, right? calibrated uh, application of pain. This is the grouped use of precision conventional strike against the adversary's territory and direct threat to use nuclear weapons, sometimes even escalating to mass use of precision conventional strike, demonstrative use of nuclear weapons, and singular groups use of non-strategic nuclear weapons. It is not mechanistic, it is context-based, it is a flexible strategy for escalation management, though the general order of preference in Russian military writing and thought is on first intimidation, then use of conventional weapons to the extent possible, a nuclear demonstration, and of course, lastly, nuclear employment. And, and naturally, for demonstration purposes, are on a third target rather than the, the adversary itself. Core ideas underwriting Russian thinking. Tailoring deterrent damage to the target, dosing of damage, achieving psychological effects against leadership or the population, material and psychological damage combined. Targets are picked as critical economic and military infrastructure. 
leveraging psychological impact of potential nuclear escalation, potential, to make singular group conventional strike course, right? Um, the key point at the end of the day of what we know about Russian military strategy and doctrine is that, look, nuclear use is a political decision. We know the courses of action and options the Russian leadership will be presented by the military and their strategy community, right? But we don't know their degree of confidence in them, their level of desirability of what necessarily they will choose to do when. We have some good evidence to suggest Russian political leadership is well in tune with military strategy, exercises, and thinking, but also quite conservative and only prone to taking, at least from the by perspective, calculated risk, okay? There are always those who call for early nuclear use in Russian circles, but they are marginal viewpoint, okay? And Russian military thinkers know that political leadership is not likely to authorize early nuclear release. Conventional nuclear force at the end of the day and Russian thinking are highly complementary. Neither is ever meant to replace the other. Let me close out, since I only have two minutes left, on kind of a short summary of what I see the NPR assessment problems, what it gets right, some wrong. First, the writing that Russian strategy and doctrine emphasized potential course of military uses on nuclear weapons is absolutely correct. I don't know why in the NPR it says mistakenly deterrence is inherently coercive, and since when do nuclear weapons not have a course of military use? Russian strategy may not succeed, but it's definitely better than no escalation management strategy, and it's, and it's well founded in deterrence theory. Paradoxically, the US has sought matching capabilities to retaliate in kind, which makes the NPR a bit schizophrenic because it's saying to the Russians, I think you're crazy and it won't work. And I'm going to get matching capabilities kind of like yours to engage in a similar retaliatory strategy. The real problem in the current course is that this approach, while offering the United States great options, has a trade-off. Everything has a trade-off. It enables Russian escalation management strategy by sailing straight into it and stabilizing the potential exchange. Basically, by increasing our force option, we reduce the Russian risk by saying we're going to retaliate in kind. We have limited escalation options um, internally. I'm not seeing anything the U.S. is buying that poses insurmountable challenges to Russia, as the NPR suggests, or really in any way complicates Russian thinking. If anything, the thing that does that in missile defense, but it's not talked about in the NPR. Um, we do have some real strategic issues in how we think about our declaratory policy, what we say the role of nuclear weapons are, and what we're buying, which is U.S. declaratory policy says escalation can't be controlled. But U.S. programmatic strategy says it can. We're going to get limited weapons of low limited numbers of low-yield nuclear weapons, okay, and engage in a control exchange just in case we're the ones that are mistaken about the whole escalation management thing. Personally, I find that very prudent. I'm not personally opposed to any of the capabilities we're buying. Um, but buying capabilities does not for a strategy make, right? Okay, since my time is up, uh, I think I'm going to turn it over to our next speaker, Fiona. Thank you very much. Okay, well, uh, it's a, a real pleasure to follow um, Michael and Amy, and I also want to thank Eric and thank Cato for um, bringing together this expert panel uh, online. Um, I really appreciate it. So what I thought I would do was to examine some of the assumptions in the NPR about Chinese nuclear strategy. And in doing so, I'm going to draw on um, some research that I recently published in the International Security Journal that I co-authored with M. Taylor Fravel, who is a uh, professor of political science at MIT. And it was published last year. It's still ungated from the MIT Press website if you are interested uh, in reading more for reasons of agreement or disagreement uh, in a similar manner to Michael. And we were researching Chinese views of nuclear escalation actually at roughly the same time the NPR uh, was being formulated in late uh, 2016 and early uh, 2017. So based on this work, I'm gonna talk about uh, three things. 
Firstly, I'm going to recap uh, what the NPR implies about uh, Chinese nuclear use. Then I'm going to look at how uh, those uh, scenarios square with what our research showed about Chinese nuclear strategy, and then highlight uh, the challenge of tailored deterrence to the United States and its relationship with China, which I think is key to minimizing nuclear dangers. So starting with uh, what the NPR says about Chinese uh, use, I'm going to quote from it directly. It says that our tailored strategy for China is designed to prevent Beijing from mistakenly concluding that it could secure an advantage through the limited use of its theater nuclear capabilities or that any use of nuclear weapons, however limited, is acceptable. So it basically implies that China believes it could secure advantages through the limited use of nuclear weapons. So what might limited Chinese use look like? Well, I'm going to uh, outline sort of four scenarios. The first is that it could involve limited retaliation for limited U.S. uh, first use of nuclear weapons. The second is that it could involve China using nuclear weapons after a U.S. conventional strike uh, had damaged some part of China's nuclear arsenal, a concern that a number of U.S. analysts have raised uh, about U.S. conventional warfighting concepts in the Indo-Pacific. The third is that it could uh, involve China using nuclear weapons first for a coercive or a military advantage in an otherwise conventional military conflict. Uh, So this is a kind of Chinese escalate to de-escalate strategy, if you like. And finally, it could involve China using its nuclear weapons to signal rather than actually destroying a target. So China could send uh, its mobile missiles out on patrol. It could conduct missile launch exercises, test launches, etc., And there's a concern that this signaling could have a chilling effect on U.S. leaders or allies in a future uh, conflict. Note, though, that two of these scenarios, the first two, retaliation for uh, U.S. limited use uh, or conventional attacks on China's nuclear arsenal, these both depend very much on U.S. actions that would put China in a position where nuclear use is more likely. And these are uh, situations the U.S. could um, arguably avoid uh, in ways that could make scenarios less likely um, rather than in ways that it might build its nuclear forces. So how then do these possibilities square with what we know about uh, Chinese nuclear strategy or certainly what we know in the open source community based on on some of the research uh, that, uh, that we've done? Uh, So let's start with the Chinese escalate to de-escalate possibility. Um, Taylor Fravel and I in our research that we published last year found little evidence to support this possibility. Specifically, we didn't find evidence of the kinds of beliefs, operational doctrine or force structure that would be optimal for the first use of nuclear weapons in this manner. Uh, China's nuclear strategy, uh, we argued, is better characterized uh, as assured retaliation We have some pretty good sources on Chinese operational doctrine from the early 2000s and public sources since uh, that time uh, have suggested that China's uh, nuclear land-based missiles have only one campaign, which is a nuclear counter-strike campaign. This is consistent with its pledge not to use nuclear weapons first and goals in its nuclear strategy uh, to prevent an adversary from coercing China with nuclear threats in an otherwise conventional war and retaliating if China is attacked with nuclear weapons, not to coerce an adversary in an otherwise conventional war or war fighting through the use of nuclear weapons. Its arsenal is only a few hundred delivery vehicles, about a third of which are intercontinental uh, in range. Some theater nuclear weapons that could strike U.S. bases in Asia, but it uh, has to be noted that they also serve regional deterrence missions uh, for China's nuclear adversaries, Russia and India. 
um, and uh, no short-range nuclear-tipped uh, missiles uh, uh, insofar as we're aware. And we had this striking finding, though, that Chinese strategists didn't think that nuclear escalation could be controlled further once uh, one nuclear weapon uh, was used. But rather than seeing this as something that China could exploit to put coercive pressure on an adversary and that kind of shelling-esque manipulation of risk style, Chinese strategists tend to see this uh, feature of nuclear conflict as constraining decision makers to try to resolve uh, their conflicts at the conventional level rather than spilling over into the nuclear domain. Furthermore, strategists in the early 2000s thought uh, that when uh, China was actually debating whether or not it might need to change its uh, no first use policy and thinking about questions like non-strategic nuclear weapons uh, in response to some of the Bush administration's um, nuclear posture review uh, uh, capabilities that were included in that, including things like bunker buster um, uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And so at that time, strategists thought that uh, you needed a big arsenal to engage in limited nuclear strikes for war fighting or coercive bargaining. Otherwise, if you were to engage in some sort of a tit-for-tat nuclear bargaining with an adversary, it would just delay the inevitable use of strategic weapons that China would have to resort to when it ran out of nuclear weapons, uh, uh, ran out of non-strategic nuclear weapons first. So, of course, we worry that uh, China thinks it has higher stakes in an East Asian conflict and could gamble that the U.S. would back down if it uh, engaged in limited nuclear use. But Chinese strategists also uh, look at this uh, kind of a possibility and they don't assume the uh, balance of resolve advantage that China might have would end a conflict favorably. They are thinking about what would happen if the United States retaliated with the full force of its arsenal and how they get the United, the rest of the world to accept a change status quo if they use nuclear weapons to bring that about. Okay, so turning to the second possibility of Chinese uh, nuclear signaling, I think one of the sources of concern within the United States um, about uh, China's uh, nuclear strategy and how it might use nuclear weapons in a future conflict is based on a classified teaching test, text uh, for China's missile force that was published in 2004 um, and that was leaked to the West. And that outlined uh, nuclear deterrence actions such as patrolling nuclear missiles, conducting launch exercises, or publicly lowering the nuclear threshold, but didn't actually describe a campaign for uh, nuclear first use. And it's important to note that Chinese leaders would have had to explicitly authorize such actions. The missile force couldn't do them on the, their own. And this text was authored, as I mentioned, at a time when uh, China was debating changes to its nuclear strategy that its leadership ultimately rejected. Um, China was also much more, uh, much weaker conventionally and lacked options like its conventional missiles that it now views uh, as uh, sources of strategic leverage, ways it can escalate uh, a conflict uh, in a similar way to Russia in that manner. Um, and what this book suggested is that these signals would be designed to inform an adversary that China would retaliate for nuclear first use. Um, and they might actually even be taken uh, to ensure that China's missiles just survive a first strike because they're less likely to survive that if they're in a garrison rather than patrolling on a mobile missile. But the United States might view these kinds of actions as preparations for first use because it lacks confidence in China's no first use pledge. While Chinese strategists having confidence in that pledge might not uh, recognise the dangers of misperception that uh, uh, the United States or its uh, allies might see this as brandishing 
uh, and preparations for first use rather than uh, signaling that if China is attacked with nuclear weapons, it will retaliate. Um, I think such signaling is possible, and it's probably the escalatory dynamic that concerns me the most. The third possibility that, that I'll just touch on briefly is this one about inadvertent nuclear escalation. Scholars in the United States have worried that attempts to disable China's conventional theater range missiles uh, could damage infrastructure associated with its nuclear weapons, um, and China might use a nuclear weapon to retaliate. Uh, Taylor in my earlier work found that uh, China had allowed for some limited ambiguity over how it would respond to such a strike, whether it would use nuclear weapons or what or not. Uh, I think both for reasons of uh, deterrence as well as for operational flexibility. And actually, I think Chinese signaling is more likely than actual use in this case. So uh, what should the United States really be worrying about when it comes to China? Uh, I would argue that it should be worrying about trying to preserve China's small strategic retaliatory force structure. Um, and the U.S. shouldn't be thinking of China uh, in a similar manner as a mini Russia. It has a different approach to nuclear strategy quite different beliefs about limited nuclear use and its utility, a very different nuclear arsenal, and it would be engaged in very different uh, conflicts to Russia. So U.S. measures to deter countries with more aggressive nuclear strategies, I think, are the most likely driver of change in China's nuclear force structure from a small strategic retaliatory force uh, because it misperceives those actions as directed towards it. Um, and I think the differences between Russia and China pose big challenges for tailored deterrence from the United States' part, because uh, if the United States is developing these non-strategic options uh, to deter Russian limited strikes, regardless of the wisdom of doing so, this could prompt China to develop a more robust re uh, limited retaliatory capability, uh, meaning a larger or more diverse non-strategic nuclear weapons arsenal that could also enable limited Chinese first use. Um, and I will close just by saying that uh, the challenges of uh, tailored deterrence are already evident from China, uh, because back in approximately 2013, uh, Chinese strategists indicated the country would need a bigger arsenal to deal with missile defense, uh, observing that there was a U.S. bipartisan commitment to this capability, even if the United States tried very hard to signal that this capability was targeted at North Korea uh, and not uh, at China. So... Um, I don't propose to have the answers to how it is signal which set of capabilities are due for which adversary, but only to caution the dangers uh, of not thinking through the differences between adversaries in that manner. I'll turn it back over to Eric. Thank you all very much. Those were great comments. Um, we're now going to turn to the Q&A portion of the event. I will say something that I forgot to mention at the outset is that uh, some of the reports that Michael and Fiona reference can be found on the website for this event. If you scroll down uh, below the invite text uh, near the bottom of the website, there are links to Fiona and Taylor's recent article, Michael's recent report, um, a nuclear anthology that I edited last year for the Cato Institute, and a recent report by Amy Wolf. Um, for the Q&A, we've been getting a lot of great questions in on Slido. I might try to bundle several of these into sort of theme questions instead of addressing them individually, because I think there's some that all fit within a certain uh, theme. One of which that keeps coming up is the role of allies. There's been several great questions, um, including from uh, Jeff Larson uh, and Raphael uh, Loss on the Slido chat about what role do that relate to allies, basically. Uh, what, how do uh, US strategy, how does US strategy get affected by 
our extended deterrence commitments? How might uh, NATO or East Asian allies affect U.S. decision making when it comes to trying to craft a deterrent strategy to Russia and China? Um, for Michael and Fiona, if you could each uh, speak to this for uh, a little bit of, of time, each of you, what sort of role do we see allies playing in influencing U.S. nuclear strategy um, and how does that affect our approach to Russia and China? And I guess, uh, Fiona, if you wanted to go first, followed by Michael. Okay, so um, I've spent most of my time studying Chinese nuclear strategy rather than the formulation of U.S. nuclear strategy. So uh, I'll only just state uh, briefly that I think the big issue that comes up with extended deterrence commitments is, well, there, there are two really. One is that most uh, U.S.-China contingencies do involve uh, allies and partners, some of whom are treaty allies and some of whom are uh, partners uh, like, uh, like Taiwan who have active disputes with uh, the People's Republic that could draw the United States into a conflict with China. Um, and as uh, I think extended deterrence um, or theorists of nuclear deterrence have worried about for or, or puzzled over since the, the beginning of these kinds of commitments in the Cold War, the big issue there is really a credibility one of how does the United States signal that uh, it would be willing to engage in a nuclear conflict uh, on behalf of an ally in which it hadn't been uh, attacked first, and especially with a country uh, that has a secure second strike uh, against the United States. Um, so I think these factors go into uh, U.S. nuclear strategy. Others are probably better qualified than I am to speak about how precisely that factors into the nuclear posture review type of process. The only thing I will just add is that uh, our research did look a little bit at how uh, China thinks about U.S. Uh, alliances in the region, um, and uh, it was it was clear from our discussions with Chinese experts they recognized the United States had this alliance dilemma that uh, on the one hand it wouldn't want to be involved in a nuclear confrontation uh, with China, um, particularly over some of the lower stakes. Um, the lowest stakes uh, issues uh, with regarding uh, limited territorial uh, maritime territory, for example, in East Asia, um, but that its credibility, uh, not just within that alliance, but globally might be uh, at stake as a result of how it reacted in those uh, situations. And so those strategists thought uh, what was most likely in that situation is that the United States would really try to suppress the, the conflict conflict from actually getting to a stage where uh, it would have to think about using nuclear weapons vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis China. So um, they, they certainly didn't, didn't uh, miss this, uh, this issue of, of preserving credibility, not just in East Asia, but internationally uh, for the United States in terms of its alliances, but nevertheless thought that avoiding nuclear conflict would be the, the um, more important priority when push came to shove. I'll turn it over to Michael. Oh, thanks. Uh, I'll follow up um, Fiona's comments here. So first, Eric, on the question regarding role of allies. So to me, U.S. declaratory policy is really important and significant for allies. It's meant to assure them and it's meant to signal to them. From the standpoint of adversaries, it doesn't matter. People spend a lot of time working on the nuances of language in U.S. declaratory policy and adversaries don't believe it. They don't care what's written in there. They look at your program strategy, capabilities you're buying, things you exercise, that really speaks a lot more of your strategy than old ambiguity and things that are typically written in declaratory policy, which is much more relevant to allies. Um, regarding allies, I think the United States 
But fundamentally, still, escalation dilemmas, obviously, in any extended deterrence context, is constantly trying to solve. And this would lead the United States to spend a lot more time worrying about self-deterrence and the fact that we might not follow through, as opposed to the Russian side. Russia faces four structure escalation dilemmas that this strategy tries to solve, right? The fact that the United States can inflict unacceptable damage and can win a conventional only war, which then does force Russia potentially to have to escalate with nuclear weapons as an asymmetric and fairly competitive offset, but it poses an escalation dilemma for them too. Um, and the last point I make is that, look, allies, you know, they're a strength, but they're a potential vulnerability, right? And Russian escalation management strategy in part is designed uh, to create uh, fractures in an alliance in a regional uh, war type context um, to be able to potentially peel allies off or to intimidate them um, in, in an interwar deterrence type context. And this, of course, raises big, big questions about some strategy the United States is pursuing, the trade-offs of it, which I'll close on this point. Look, any retaliation of kind strategy, right, has drawback. And that is, let's say both Russia and the United States go through a nuclear demonstration in, the, in a crisis or early in conflict. Well, many non-nuclear powers like Germany might decide that it's simply not worth it with them and, and get out of conflict, right? That is that just matching Russia, retaliating in kind can lead to a fracturing of your own alliance that has downsides because you pose entrapment problems for your own allies who understand that the next steps in escalation will involve them receiving nuclear weapons, right? I'm not saying there's any easy answer to this. These are wicked problems, right? There's not an easy solution to it. I'm just saying that everything has trade-offs. Oh, sorry, I'll turn it back over to you. I apologize. I believe Amy wanted to add something. Oh, unfortunately, Amy, you are, you are currently muted. Sorry. Sorry. Um, the whole reason we are talking about the gaps in U.S. capabilities and the misperceptions that adversaries might have that they can exploit those gaps is because of the allies. Our goal here is to reassure our allies that we won't be self-deterred, that we will come to their defense, that we won't pack up and go home when Russia or China threaten us. So this has been a problem throughout the nuclear age, and it was addressed in both the 2001 and the 2010 Nuclear Post Review by trying to fill those gaps in our deterrent capabilities with things other than nuclear weapons, mostly missile defense, precision conventional weapons. The 2010 Nuclear Post Review referred to this as regional deterrence architectures, that if there, there is a gap between what we can do at the conventional level and what we can do to reassure our allies that we have their back in a nuclear war, we would fill it with um, conventional weapons. What this um, NPR has done is filled it with a nuclear capability. And it's interesting because NATO has also filled it with conventional capabilities through the European Deterrence Initiative in an effort to deter the war that would lead us to the circumstance where we are uh, de defending our allies and Russia tries to force us to go home. So the whole point prior to this NPR was to fill out the full scope of US capabilities. And what's interesting is while the nuclear post review focuses on this big, this piece of gap at the nuclear level, it is totally silent on the conventional gaps that might get us here. And to that point in the last two years, funding for the European Deterrence Initiative has been rated to build something that's a higher priority of the president. So you have to wonder 
how serious the Allies' concerns are here if our only answer is with nuclear weapons. But that's what this NPR seems to be pointing to. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, another group of questions that several folks have answered or that several folks have asked on the Slido chat relate to the issue of arms control. And I know that this presentation is primarily about nuclear deterrence strategies. However, arms control is a component of that nuclear relationship and goes into nuclear deterrence. Um, there seems to be a lot of interest on the trilateral question, how to get Russia and China involved in an arms control treaty with the United States. And I know that is a huge, huge topic. Um, however, uh, I think that it's worth exploring. Um, and I, uh, Michael, if you wanted to start, um, what sorts of things, if the administration was serious about getting China and Russia into a trilateral agreement, what types of things would the U.S. have to consider on the Russian side? And then, uh, Fiona, if you could answer what kind of things we'd have to consider from the Chinese perspective, given how different Russia and China are when it comes to nuclear strategy. Okay, thanks, Eric. I'm happy to briefly take that on. So first, on trilateral arms control, I'm a big pessimist, and I think people generally talk about it when they just don't want to have more arms control. The Russians uh, raised the prospect of uh, bringing China in when they basically wanted to find a soft way to say no to the Obama administration on further nuclear reductions. They were never really that serious about it. And I think that in many respects, that's what's taking place today. I don't think there's any strong expectation that you're going to get China, Russia, and the United States on board, um, nor do I feel any to. I think Russia and the United States have uh, maybe 92 plus percent of the world's nuclear weapons, and China has some percentage to that, but that can be a separate agreement. Um, to be future arms control, it has some basic fundamental problems and things we have to address. We have to first accept that uh, strategic arms control, like New Star Treaty, to me is very important. But for many decades now, both Russia and the United States have engaged in arms control that satisfies all these legacy issues, but simply does not answer some of the long-running now questions both countries have um, for their own national security. On the Russian side, it has to do with U.S. offensive uh, conventional arsenal, which the Russian military sees as strategic. And a lot of Russian strategy is geared towards countering it, deterring, and finding a competitive strategy to dealing with it, right? Um, and so it's looking much more towards conventional, uh, uh, limiting U.S. conventional weapons. On the U.S. side, it's Russia's non-strategic nuclear arsenal, right? Theater nuclear weapons, which may in time in this decade exceed Russia's uh, deployed strategic nuclear arsenal, which is not governed by any arms control. But, you know, that's an essential part of Russian nuclear warfighting strategy. And the United States is not, it's, neither side has been interested, demonstrably interested in compromising or giving up anything to get the things that it wants. And that's been really the challenge for the future of arms control, assuming we're actually going to have any, any arms control in reality after next year. And so these are, to me, are the issues that have to be addressed. And both sides raise them in arms control negotiations, and neither side's really seriously interested in, in addressing the security concerns of the other. Um, and last but not least, I'll say, I see no future for further nuclear reductions. They don't make any sense. With qualitative improvements in nuclear weapons and targeting and investments in missile defense, I just don't see what's in it for either side, certainly not um, certainly not for the Russian side. I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. I'm, I'm afraid it's maybe a somewhat pessimistic note in the future of arms control, but I don't see um, I'll be, I think an optimistic note is that New START gets extended and somehow we continue with strategic nuclear arms control that we have inherited. Okay, so I'll, I'll take a stab as well. I, I mean, I'm like Michael, I'm not particularly optimistic about the prospects for trilateral arms control. And I'll admit that my 
uh, understanding of Chinese thinking on arms control is pretty uh, pretty old and outdated and based on sort of views from the early 2000s, I think, when some of these questions came up uh, previously. But uh, I think at that stage, Chinese strategists were reluctant to lock in any perceived disadvantage to their retaliatory nuclear capabilities. Um, and it would surprise me if that attitude uh, had changed today. Um, so I think a little bit in a similar vein to Michael, the things that uh, uh, China might be most concerned about in any arms control uh, agreements or, or would be limiting non-nuclear capabilities that could affect the sufficiency of its retaliatory capability. And so specifically missile defense, I think, would, would, would need to be on the table for, um, for discussions for that to be a sort of successful uh, set of discussions, at least, I think, in a, in a numerical sense. But I will end on one other uh, slightly optimistic note, which is to say that I think uh, Chinese strategists have been um, long aware of the dangers and wastefulness of nuclear arms racing and that this was uh, one of the things that led to the downfall, excuse me, the downfall of the Soviet Union um, at the end of the Cold War. And so uh, they, I think, have been quite careful to abide by this principle of a limited but effective nuclear arsenal, which uh, has been the kind of guiding principle for Chinese nuclear force structure Um uh, since the 1970s, and it's dynamic to the uh, the capabilities that the United States would be fielding, uh, but nevertheless um, uh, is, is this idea of having uh, no more than you need to to be able to uh, carry out um, retaliation against an adversary after a nuclear strike. So uh, their sort of perspective on sizing the force thus far has been quite moderate and doesn't make me too concerned about uh, a sprint for parity if that was even within, I think, the the fissile material kind of stockpile capability of China. Okay, great. Um, another group of questions that we've received on Slido has to do with American deployments of INF range missiles. Uh, so the United States left the INF Treaty in August 2019 which allows us to deploy ground launch cruise and ballistic missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation and, and I imagine uh, some discussion on the government side of what do you build and where do you deploy it? Um, I think, and I think this gets to an issue that I, that I, I know several other experts have, have worried about, which is the interplay between conventional precision strike capabilities and nuclear escalation. Um, so, this could be for anyone uh, to start us off with, but uh, is the United States, how, how does that conventional side and potentially the missile defense side of the equation factor into the NPR, the 2018 NPR? I know that it was a big part um, of the Obama administration's NPR. Is it something that the Trump administration is placing a similar amount of weight on um, and then what are some of those implications for nuclear deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China if you can start having some strategic effects from non-nuclear systems? Oh, uh, Amy, you're muted again. I know. I can start. Um, the 2018 NPR does not deal with missile defense or conventional capabilities at all. There was a partnered missile defense review which came out considerably after the nuclear posture review. 
it noted that um, the United States would continue to use nuclear deterrence to address the threats from Russia and China, that we wouldn't seek to build missile defenses that could affect Russian and Chinese strategic forces. But at the same time, as we thicken up and expand our regional missile defenses, which has been the goal of the United States for years, I mean, it was significantly the goal in the 2001-2010 NPRs, regional missile defenses are there both to protect U.S. allies, U.S. forces, and to deter the outbreak of conflict. The Russians and the Chinese see those defenses that we don't intend to be positioned against their strategic forces as a threat to their strategic forces. So the Russians and the Chinese see overlap there where the 2018 nuclear posture review and missile defense review specifically split the two. On precision conventional weapons, as Michael mentioned, the Russians find those to be a significant concern. They usually, when they say precision conventional weapons, want you to believe they're talking about hypersonics, but they are talking about cruise missiles. They've long had concerns about U.S. conventional cruise missiles, particularly tomahawks, that can approach their borders and attack strategic facilities. So if we are expanding the capabilities of our precision conventional missiles, particularly cruise missiles, at an intermediate range, but also ballistic missiles, and thinking about putting them on land, I know the Russians would consider that to be an extraordinarily new and pressing threat, and I suspect the Chinese would as well, but it is U.S. strategy and theory to do so because first, we don't have to abide by the treaty, but also when we look at China, they have, as people like to say, thousands of intermediate range missiles and they weren't bound by the treaty. So there is some sense of a need to balance Chinese capabilities by doing this. And there's some sense of the need to acquire the conventional attack capability by doing this. And of course, the debate remains, do we do it on land or do we do it at sea? And if we do it on land, where do we put them? But there is rationale behind this. The Slickums in particular addressed a bit in the NPR, but missile defense and Slickums and conventional weapons weren't a part of the NPR. Um, if I can very briefly follow on Amy's wonderful comments regarding this issue first. So I think the United States is developing uh, land-based capabilities, uh, which would have been um, within INF range, uh, but we don't really need them. We can do a lot with air-based and sea-based weapons. It's really an option play for us. Uh, might be much more relevant in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Russia is the country they need to get INF to meet its own force requirements. Um, and it was always viewed from Russian perspective as a highly unfavorable treaty that was signed at the end, at the end of the Cold War. Uh, in part for political reasons. Currently, Russia's engaged in a no-host campaign in Europe, basically trying to convince Europeans not to host U.S. Uh, theater uh, range capabilities, but I don't think it's gonna make too much difference. Three brief points on this. One, um, regional hypersonic weapons, I think will make crisis stability really interesting because hypersonic weapons make the real difference at the operational level of war, and particularly in the sort of non-strategic range. So when both sides eventually deploy theater range hypersonic weapons, with very, very uh, difficult to intercept, no nose or low nose um, uh, uh, flight time. So that's going to create a lot of challenges. To me, future, only future real for regional arms control is actually more in this department, which is not talking about arms control, but actually about limitations. Things that had deployed capabilities that are both conventional and nuclear uh, at the same time, where both sides might choose to agree to limit uh, to mutual restraint in deployment after some period of time. And the last point is that US ballistic missile defense in theater is the thing that poses a real challenge 
to Russian escalation management strategy. That is, if you intend to employ singular group strikes, very limited use of conventional weapons, very limited use of nuclear weapons, and theater missile defense creates real challenges of how you calculate that, how you calibrate that. The unintended effect of missile defense is that it leads Russia to, of course, invest in a hex strategy in fairly um, pricey for them, but still rather cheap uh, capabilities that are basically the novel and new nuclear capabilities to basically hedge against an uncertain future that the United States has a breakthrough in missile defense. So when you look at the Poseidon uh, nuclear power torpedo or avant-garde hypersonic boost glide strategic weapon, these are essentially responses to U.S. missile defense programs and missile defense research, and they were all launched many, many years ago. It just happens that Russia built these weapons well in the head of when the United States was able to make missile defense viable, if it's ever really going to be viable at the strategic level. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I'll just add a couple of comments from the East Asian perspective. The first is on the, the very last uh, point that Eric raised about uh, um, starting to see strategic effects from non-nuclear uh, weapons and capabilities, in particular conventional missiles, but also we might think about counter space and uh, offensive cyber that are uh, targeted at, um, at another country's critical infrastructure. I would argue that I think these uh, capabilities have, have already had uh, already having effects on the way that uh, the United States and China think about prosecuting um, conventional conflicts in the region and about how they coerce each other. I would uh, characterize China's kind of approach to strategic deterrence as being one of, of strategic substitution, which some of the thinking about nuclear first use um, is less perhaps um, or is, is substituted by relying on some of these non-nuclear uh, weapons with strategic effects uh, such as counter space, uh, cyber and its conventional missile arsenal. Um, and so insofar as, uh, as Amy's remarks suggested that some of uh, the most recent discussion of US low yield capabilities talks about uh, uh, I'm going to find the words exactly, um, Chinese use of weapons of mass destruction and, and weapons with strategic effects might actually be speaking about deterring those kinds of attacks. Um, furthermore, as I noted at the end of my remarks, missile defense, I think, has already prompted China to think about modestly increasing the size of the arsenal, uh, diversifying and, and hedging into uh, other capabilities, including submarine the submarine forces, some Chinese publications have suggested. Um, but in terms of uh, the U.S. deploying INF range capabilities uh, within range of China, um, I think there is less of a distinction problem from China's perspective because it does not currently have a launch on warning or launch under attack capabilities. So um, this wouldn't necessarily lead to Chinese nuclear preemption. Um, but uh, Chinese strategists also, uh, also point out that uh, the United States already has land and sea-based uh, conventional capabilities that have the same ranges. So the real, I think, difference is actually in the cost of these missiles to the United States um, and therefore how many it can, can um, uh, levy at China. And the second, uh, I think, bit of skepticism that Chinese strategists have, have put out in response to the INF and the prospect of these systems being deployed in East Asia is that you have to put them somewhere. And that is that somewhere is usually allied territory and allies might be reluctant to let these missiles be deployed on their territory in ways uh, that are survivable because they need to be mobile. On the other hand, if that kind of thing did happen, I think this would uh, add to China's threat perception because in some ways it would bind allies more tightly into the US's thinking about conflict. 
Um, but uh, I'll leave it at that and turn it back over to Eric. Okay, great. Uh, thank you all. And um, we have time for uh, one more question. And if any of you have any quick parting remarks before we uh, sign off, please say them. Um, this one from Olya Olaker uh, from Mike or Fiona. She was wondering about the civilian leadership versus military views of nuclear weapons and their uses in Russia and China. Do you think there is any difference in these parties' viewpoints and does it matter at all? Okay, I, I will take a stab first, which is just to say that, that uh, historically aspects of the Chinese missile force have not had a particularly strong influence over the formulation of nuclear strategies. So what the civilians think is and what the civilian um, kind of nuclear strategists uh, uh, group thinks about nuclear strategy, I think is, is probably more important. But uh, the influence of uh, the People's Liberation Army and the missile force in particular um, on the formulation of nuclear strategy has, I think, been increasing in recent years. Um, and their previous um, uh, writings suggest that they do see some value for um, more, uh, I guess, a, a, a broader set of goals for Chinese nuclear weapons. Um, but uh, thus far, the leadership has sort of been able to keep a lid on those questions. So I will, uh, I will turn it over to Michael, but to say, yes, there are some differences there, but uh, so far the civilians have prevailed and I think they'll continue to prevail. Thanks, Fiona. Um, my view is, of course, that nuclear use in Russia is very much a political decision. Are there differences? For sure. The military thinks in a certain way. And when we talk about uh, Russian uh, nuclear strategy, escalation management strategy, and our people write about, they're really talking about what the military has written, right? And the military makes plans, makes plans for everything. Um, and it makes plans, uh, even particularly in cases where I think the civilian leadership may not go through with that particular course of uh, action just to present it to them. So what do we know about uh, coordination integration? My personal view is that based on what's written in national security documents that are formally adopted and have been over the years, uh, Vladimir Putin's own statements that, and the statements of other senior political leaders that suggest they actually do spend a no Russian nuclear strategy, they spend time reading it and are quite familiar with it, and participation in nuclear exercises, pretty regular annual participation, suggests that they're reasonably well in tune with the thrust of these ideas and plans. They may not approve all of them, they may not know the intricate details of them, and they may not have the same confidence in the military people. The military people and planners think about things a certain way. Political leaders will tend to think of them differently and are likely to be far more conservative and far less optimistic uh, about the likelihood of escalation management. Okay, so what I, it's important to say that yes, while we do know kind of the options that will be presented to them, we should be very careful. People historically made this mistake in Russia analysis, particularly Russian military analysis, and saying, "Well, I read this in General Staff doctrine, and so this is where Russian policy and Russian strategy for sure is, and that's definitely what they'll do in conflict." Not necessarily. It's very informative. It's very useful for our knowledge. Um, but we should always remember that at the end of the day, there's, there's a tremendous amount of um, uncertainty and ambiguity in actual crisis point. And, and that requires more research, more time and investment. You should expect there will be differences between political leadership that makes decisions, defense planners and strategists who tend to think about things a certain way. And the same is reflected in, in U.S. strategy documents. Thank you. All right. And with that, uh, we are out of time. Uh, thank you very much to all of the uh, speakers for joining us today. Uh, thank you also to all of you who watched along with us um, and attended. 
Uh, we did have a lot of very good questions coming in from social media and from uh, the Slido thread. So I'm sorry that I wasn't able to address all of them. Um, if you're interested in learning more about this issue, again, check out those reports that are linked to um, on the event page that I mentioned earlier. And this video will be archived and put up on our website uh, later today if any of you would like to share it with any colleagues or come back to it uh, for reference. So with that, um, that's it for today. Thank you all so much for coming and I look forward to seeing you at future Cato events.